You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Happy Tuesday to all of you. Welcome to my live stream this week. And uh, I'm glad you're here for a Tuesday. Last night, uh, we were all enjoying a nice Memorial Day picnic with our family. And I hope that you had some time to remember and reflect and thank the Lord for the freedoms that we have here in our country. And I hope that you'll be enjoying the teaching tonight on justice. I've been working really hard on it. It's going to be a two-part teaching. So tonight will be part one, and then we'll pick it up next week because it was just, I I didn't think you guys wanted to sit here for like four hours. So I've kind of got a one-hour conversation slated tonight, and then we'll pick it up next week, and then we'll kind of see where we are. So let's get into it, and we're going to be talking about the theme of justice tonight. Um, You know, this was really kind of inspired by the recent events surrounding the Ahmaud Arbery killing and um, brought up a lot of thoughts about justice, wanted to let some time go by so that people's emotions could kind of calm down a little bit and help us think through the nature of justice. And and I've been thinking a lot about how can I help God's people think about this issue? And, uh, you know, whenever there's a tragic shooting in the news, then we see the the host of, of posts on social media about justice and the atmosphere of our culture just gets re- filled really quickly with a lot of angry words and accusations. You know, we might hear uh, some preachers or see some preachers posting on their social media the quote from Micah 6.8. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's kind of one of the critical foundational verses that you hear a lot of people quote when justice claims come up. In fact, I even have seen on Twitter things of this sentiment. I had this Twitter post from Union Seminary. Social justice is not extra. Social justice is the gospel. And I'm seeing this sentiment more and more. And there was a graphic this morning just this morning, it was posted on Facebook. It was from the AND campaign, and they had this this graphic here of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right belief. You see all these great historic Christian doctrines on the left there of the authority of Scripture, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the necess- necessity of Jesus for salvation, the Trinity. And then on the right-hand side, you see orthopraxy, which is right practice. How do we practice our religion? And you see up there right at the top, social action on behalf of the poor and marginalized, rejection of racism, sexism, and all form of exploitation, neighborly love, forgiveness, and Christ-like compassion. And so I see right there, and this is an evangelical entity called the AND Campaign. And I thought this was, this just came up this morning. They just posted this and it falls right in line with our conversation because the setup here is clearly that if you don't advocate for justice in the right way through social advocacy and all of these things, then what we're saying is, you know, you might not be a real Christian or you might be kind of a Christian in name only. There's all kinds of questions that get raised about whether or not you're even a legitimate follower of Christ. And so 
I've spent, you know, kind of the last year and a half thinking a lot about justice, studying it in scripture, and that journey has sent me deep into scripture and rethinking some things to more investigate the issue. And so my hope is to invite you into a little bit of that journey tonight and next week and look at God's standard for justice. Rather than allowing ourselves to just kind of get swept up in the mob and what our culture is telling us justice is, and before we start preaching about social activism as being a gospel issue, I just kind of want to have everyone slow down a little bit, take some deep breaths, have a family meeting, and inquire about what do we mean when we use the word justice, and what does it mean from a biblical point of view. So, and then also throughout the teaching tonight, I'm going to start weaving, you know, some practical applications in of how can God's people advocate for justice on a practical level. So, you know, this, as usual, I always have to give the disclaimer, it's not going to be an exhaustively complete conversation about justice, but my hope is that it'll give us a little further down the road and maybe spark something in you, some conversations and maybe your own thinking about how to apply God's law to everyday life. So let's start with a biblical definition of the word justice, because as you saw, even in that that and campaign infographic, they're using words like social activism and racial reconciliation and sexism and racism and all these things. And I'm like, wow, no definitions are being given here. And that's okay. I understand the nature of an infographic, like everything can't be stated But there's so much that's latent. There's so much that's behind all of those words. And I'm like, okay, so how do we start to break that down? So let's just start with a definition of justice, because if we're going to talk about anything, we want to know what we're talking about and we want to define it from God's point of view. So that's the first big question we're going to tackle is how does the Bible define justice? Now, I have found that the most helpful way of understanding what God considers to be just and unjust is by reading the Mosaic Law. Now, even though the Mosaic Law is not a treaty for us as Christians, it is highly instructive because it gives us a lot of information and wisdom about what God considers to be just and unjust. And God's point of view is what should matter the most in this conversation. If we're going to have a distinctly Christian, a distinctly biblical approach to justice, then we need to talk about God's standard of justice. How does he define it? Again, we don't want to go off with our emotions, our intuitions, what our culture is telling us, the majority rule, the mob mentality even if the mob mentality or evangelical or what we call big Eva, that's not what we're going to do. We're, we're going to look at scripture, okay? And we're going to try to do it in a reasoned and careful way. Because we know that even though the Mosaic Treaty is not a treaty for us, God's character never changes. And I think that we can glean a lot of timeless transcultural principles that apply to us today. And in fact, you know, many people who are Christian lawyers have looked at the Mosaic Law in some detail and can show how 
many of the Mosaic laws actually form the basis for many of our laws in our country. And so I have found that the best place to start the conversation about justice is to look in the Mosaic law and to look at the laws sort of like case studies of what God considered just and unjust. So we're going to start with looking at the Hebrew definition of the word justice. There's actually two different words in Hebrew that are translated into English as justice. So we're going to start by looking at the word mishpat. Now, mishpat means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. Mishpat is the world of judges and laws and law courts. And if we see here the definition, um, and I want to say a big shout out to my research assistant, David, who helped me with some of my research tonight. He's got the Uber top of the line Logos Bible software. And so he sent me some screen caps. So I incorporated those right into my presentation tonight. So when we think about mishpat, it is forensic justice. It is to make a sentence. It's to have a, a judge, a punishment, to find fault, a crime, to figure out what is right and, to, and, and just. So when we think of this, we're talking about the world of judges and laws and law courts. And in fact, this is actually the word that was used in Micah 6, 8 earlier about God wanting his people to walk justly. It is mishpat justice. This is the kind of justice that these teachings are going to mostly focus on as we look closer at God's laws. Now, there's a second word for justice that's also good to be aware of. We're not going to talk about it as much, but I want it to be on our radar, which is sadak or sadaka, depending on if we're talking about the adjective or, or the noun. Now, um, sadak, think of this is like Neil Sadaka, the, uh, the famous singer <laughs> from the 70s and 80s. This is what his name actually means. And I do believe he was Jewish. And this is about righteous living. This refers to our day-to-day -day living, our choices that are revealed through our conduct. How are we treating our family members and strangers? Are we treating them with fairness, generosity, and equality? It's to walk in a righteous and upright way. It's to be honest and virtuous and pious, okay? This is sadak. This is the kind of justice that we live out in our everyday life. This is not law court justice, okay? So one is kind of more like personal justice and one is law court justice, this is how we reveal through our everyday conduct who we are in relationship with and who we are. That's justice. That's sadaka. Just to give a couple of examples of sadak, um, it could mean donating your expertise to a person who can't afford your services. Maybe you're a plumber and you come to realize that your neighbor who's elderly has a plumbing problem and, and you have the expertise to help them fix it. But you know that, that that elderly neighbor is on a fixed income. And so you donate your time for that repair. That would be to reflect righteousness and to, and to walk justly. If you're an attorney, you might donate your time, do pro bono work uh, through a community center or for a friend in your area of expertise. That's what Sadak 
justice would look like. Maybe you as a family organize a food drive for your local food pantry to help low-income families or the homeless. Maybe it's as simple as someone who's taking your order behind the counter or a bathroom attendant in the airport, looking at them in the eyes, maybe calling them by name, giving them a greeting, maybe even praying for them and just recognizing their dignity as a human being and treating them as an equal, not as somebody beneath you. These are examples of how we live righteously as God's people. Now, one way of seeing the connection between Sadak and Mishpat is this, if God's people would practice more tzedakah, if they would be more righteous oriented in their everyday living, then mishpat or legal justice, law court justice would become less necessary. If people would just live uprightly and and live as good people, live with as people with honesty and integrity, and not deceive people, not lie to people, not steal from others, not kill people, law courts would become less necessary. And so that is the relationship between these two terms. And I think it's interesting that God wants his people to be known as people who walk in justice. And what we, I want to, to make a really clear point here. As we talk about this, Deuteronomy chapter 16 says this, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. It's really interesting in the Hebrew that it, it's talking about here, Sadak justice. It's talking about personal righteousness. God's not saying, I want my people to be known as a litigious people with a lot of courts. He's saying, I want my people to know to be known by the surrounding nations as righteous people, kind people, good people, people who tell the truth, people who don't lie, people who act with integrity. And it, it actually says in the Hebrew, it's a sadak sadak. It's back to back. It's just it's like is this if God is saying, justice, justice, you shall pursue. In other words, God wants his people to be known as a people who live justly. The primary pursuit of God's people should be treating each other with fairness and kindness. This was to be a kind of guiding principle for the people of God. But when God's people don't act that way, then there is mishpat justice to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. So I hope that helps to kind of explain the differences between those two terms. And I want to make it really clear that when we're talking about the new covenant, which is the treaty that you and I are under as Christians, when we talk about loving our neighbor, we are not talking about the gospel, okay? The gospel is how God comes to us and invites us us as sinners to come into a relationship with him. All right. That is the gospel. The gospel is about God's action to us. And my part of that is that I just simply believe, you know, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. I just know that the only thing I bring to this relationship is my sinfulness. Okay. That's the gospel. Nothing I'm going to say tonight (laughs) has anything to do with the gospel. 
What we're talking about tonight is personal righteousness. We're talking about how do we express our love for our neighbor, okay? That's on the other side of the equation. That's an expression of what I do as a result of understanding God's love for me and understanding that I'm a sinner and God has forgiven me. Now, how do I orient my life to love others, okay? So nearly everything I'm going to say tonight is is law, all right? We don't earn our salvation through law. We gain salvation through the gospel. But we express our growth, our steps toward righteousness, our steps toward holiness. We do all of that as we love God and love our neighbor. So what we're doing tonight is talking about how do we love our neighbor, Okay, I hope that helps to understand what I'm talking about, because I'm not talking about the gospel. And if you hear a pastor say that, well, what the gospel is, is about loving God and loving your neighbor, you might need to find another church, because that's not the gospel. That's law. No one can get saved through the law. Now, we express our salvation through righteous living. Yes, but it doesn't save us. So hopefully that helps to explain that difference. All right, let's get into our next major movement of the teaching, which is what does God have to say about justice for the victim? And that is going to be our big question for tonight. If I were to summarize the big picture for mishpat justice, so this is law court justice for the victim and in the Arbery case for the deceased, it would be the word accountability. God's people should work toward holding people accountable for their actions. When we hold people accountable for their actions, then we are acting in a just way. That is what we want to be a stand for, for on behalf of the victim. So we've got a few principles to unpack what that looks like. First, God's people should treat everyone equally and fairly. That is justice for the victim. And I have a few scripture passages to help illuminate that. We're going to first look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Some translations say or favor the rich, but judge your neighbor fairly. This is a very foundational component of God's justice system. We don't favor anybody. We don't favor the rich and we don't favor the poor. We treat everybody the same. So the same rules apply to everybody in God's justice system. Deuteronomy 16 says this, do not pervert justice. So if we pervert justice, the way that we do that is by showing partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. And then we see that verse that we saw earlier. Justice, justice. Follow justice alone so that you may live and possess the land. This is very important. So in God's justice system, he does not want partiality. He wants everybody, rich and poor, the same rules apply. They should all receive the same treatment. Well, we could probably see immediately how in our own justice system, that doesn't always happen. Um, People aren't always treated the same. But if we're going to look at justice from God's point of view, 
It's very important to him that we favor neither the rich nor the poor. Now, in the case of the victim, I think how we apply this principle is that we should pursue whoever the person is who is responsible and hold them accountable. And we do that regardless of the victim's socioeconomic status. We do that regardless of their religion or their political opinion or their disability or their sex or anything about them. We don't show partiality to the rich or the poor. Second, a second principle of of how we walk in justice is that we want to carefully and accurately look at witnesses and evidences. This is very important in God's justice system. God's people should advocate that witnesses tell the truth in the situation. In Exodus chapter 20, it says this, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. If, if you know something about a crime in God's justice system, you have a moral obligation to tell the truth, to tell what you know, and to not show partiality toward either side, but to, to give fair and accurate testimony. In Exodus chapter 23, it says this, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. So we don't want to protect the guilty. We want to come forward with the truth. We don't lie to to protect the guilty. In Exodus 23, it also says this, witnesses should not lie simply because the defendant is poor. Do not show favoritism toward a poor person in a lawsuit. So even if you feel sorry for the person, you don't show partiality towards someone simply because they are poor. Okay, so those are some general principles about eyewitness testimony, and I think you could more broadly look at evidence in general. So a few practical applications. The idea of witnesses, which scripture explicitly mentions, I think could be broadened to include what, what we call evidence today. Witnesses could be things today like DNA evidence, cell phone tower pings, text messages, firearm evidence, analysis of injuries, autopsy reports. All of these things, I think, would count as witnesses in according to the general scriptural principle. And all of these witnesses, all of this evidence should be carefully preserved and presented on behalf of the victim in a fair and impartial way. Not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because it's a biblical thing to do. This is God's system and sensibility about justice. Also, some in some cultures, there is at times family or cultural pressure to lie to protect the guilty. This, remember, our big principle for the victim is to advocate for accountability. But we, as God's people, should not encourage people to lie to protect the guilty. We see this dynamic sometimes play out in mafia families or or gang loyalty or even law enforcement loyalty. There's sort of this tribalism to lie to protect the guilty. God's people should have no part of this sort of behavior. 
So those are a couple of practical applications to being truthful witnesses. Now, a third way of advocating for justice for the victim is that God's people uh, should advocate punishment for any law official, such as a judge or a, a police officer. God's people should advocate for punishment for any law official who takes bribes or is corrupt. Anything that would come in and corrupt a truthful outcome that would hold the guilty party responsible is something that, you know, God's people need to take a stand against that. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, it says this, do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. This is very important. God's qualities of a righteous judge Uh, There's a great passage in Exodus chapter 18 about this, where Moses gets some advice from his father-in-law, and Moses is just worn out from judging and and performing all his judging duties and trying to sort out people's issues. And his father-in-law comes to him and says, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? You're the only judge. Because the people come to me, they they want to seek God's will. Whenever there's a dispute, it is brought to me, and I have to decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. In other words, he's saying, you know, this is how God's justice relates to your real-life situation. His father-in-law says, what you're doing is not good. (laughs) This is not good. You and these people who come to you, you're going to wear yourself out. This work is too heavy. You can't handle it alone. Um, and he, so he gives him some advice. This is so good. He, he says, find some people to help you manage these disputes and says in verse 20, teach them the Lord's decrees, teach them the laws and instruct them and show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. And then select capable men from the people, men who fear God, they're trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. In other words, They won't take bribes. They aren't going to corrupt the system. Appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and have them serve as the judges and have you only try the very difficult cases. So this will help make your load lighter. This is such good advice that Moses's father-in-law is giving him. And I think it reveals an insight into how God wants his justice system to work. He wants people to have a a, a fair hearing, but he wants the judges to not take bribes, to be honest and trustworthy men. In fact, there's also a negative example of this in Samuel's sons in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, It says that they did not follow in the ways of their father Samuel, and they turned aside after dishonest game, and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. So in God's justice system, he does not want the system to be corrupt. And bribes is one of the main things that God tackles. But I think we could apply that principle more broadly than anything that comes in that that will sway a judge away from giving an impartial ruling or for law enforcement to take bribes and not act impartially 
on behalf of investigating for the victim, these things would would violate God's standard of justice. Okay, let's look at our fourth principle for advocating for God's justice for the victim. That is, justice for the victim does not include revenge. This is a very important point. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it talks about what happens if somebody gets killed accidentally and the killer can run to designated cities of refuge and wait for their trial. Now, the distances even had to be regulated so that the person could get there quickly. And the reason for this was that if, if the person killed his neighbor unintentionally, see there in verse four, without forethought, without malice, that person could go and flee to one of these cities of refuge and wait for their trial because it was common in the ancient world for the family to come after that person and to revenge the blood of their relative. And so God sets up kind of the system of safety for people who commit what we call today manslaughter, which is unintentional killing, and they can wait for their trial in a safe way. What's interesting is in Romans chapter 12, this principle is is kind of restated for us in our context of do not take revenge, my dear friends, but live Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. As as Christians, our righteousness should be almost the opposite of revenge. It should be one of generosity toward the wrongdoer. We are generous in our forgiveness toward the wrongdoer. We are generous in our ability to uh, not go after that person who who wronged us or wronged our family. Rather, we might pray that the Lord of the harvest would send harvest workers to preach the gospel to that person and that we ask the Lord to help us forgive that person. So the, the Christian personal ethos for ourselves of what we work for, our standard of holiness under the treaty of the new covenant, is not only do we not seek revenge, Rather, we have the Lord work with us on our heart posture that we would even consider that person who killed our family member our neighbor and that we would love that person. All right, now I want to look at a couple of situations related to the recent Arbery shooting um, and kind of begin to apply some of God's standard of justice for the victim to this situation and try to show how God's law can help to inform and shape our thoughts, how we can renew our minds, if you will, according to scripture. So the concern expressed on the 911 call from some of the neighbors was the thought that Arbery was burglarizing homes in their neighborhood. Now, I'm not going to arbitrate whether or not he was or what he was doing, but we're just going to assume for the sake of argument, just for the sake of application right now, that even if Arbery was a thief and even if he had burglarized the homes or even if he was casing homes to burglarize in the future, God's law 
does not say that the punishment for a thief is to kill him. Exodus chapter 22 has a very important insight about this. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, in other words, they get killed when when they're breaking into your house, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, in other words, if it happens in daylight, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must make restitution, but if they have nothing, they should they should be sold to pay for their theft. Now, this is a very important law to unpack a little bit here. So the punishment for a thief is restitution. It's paying back. It's not to kill them. If you see a thief running down the street in broad daylight with your television or your car, you don't escalate the situation by chasing them down with a gun. Why? (laughs) Because that would violate God's law of the punishment fitting the crime. So I'm going to come back to this verse in a, in a few minutes, but right now I'm just going to going to leave, put a little bookmark here on, on this verse and look at an additional verse of this idea of the punishment fitting the crime, because this is the real issue when we think about God's justice. And we're going to look at Exodus uh, chapter 21. If there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Very famous verses. Now, many people think that this whole eye for an eye law sounds really harsh, but they're missing the point. What God is trying to say here in this verse is that the punishment should fit the crime. Okay, so if we're going to talk about justice in the Arbery situation, is one of our principles is that we don't want to overpunish someone. Our first principle was punishment for a thief is, is restitution, not death. We don't kill them. Second point is that overpunishment would be an injustice to the guilty. We don't overpunish people. We don't give people the death penalty because they steal a television, okay? This law of eye for an eye is a very important law that I think a lot of people don't understand. God is not coming across and and being really harsh. Rather, he's saying we don't overpunish people. We don't have the death penalty for thieves, okay? The punishment should fit the crime. There should be equality of punishment with the crime. And so when we think about this general principle from God's law, I think this is very actually quite helpful. Now, just as we don't want to overpunish someone, it would also violate God's system of justice or sense of justice to not punish a thief at all, which is my third point here. Um, If we can go back to the graphic for a minute. There we go. A lack of punishment is also injustice to the victim. Now, an example that we live with in our state in California is that a few years ago, the voters passed a proposition where theft up to $950 was is now a misdemeanor. And in a lot of cases, there's no investigation, there's no arrest, there's no jail time. It, in most cases, it's basically a crime of no consequence. And in that situation, are not acting in a just way toward the shop owners. 
or homeowners who have their homes broken into. We're basically saying that our society is okay with stealing up, up to a certain amount. And that's also unjust. So we don't want to overpunish someone by shooting them for stealing our television. And we don't want to not punish them at all. Rather, we want to have just punishments. We want to have a punishment fit the crime. Now, unfortunately, our justice system doesn't really allow for direct restitution between a criminal and the victim, which is what God's law really requires. If we saw in that that verse we had up there earlier, it, it talked about restitution. And that's the idea of paying the person back that from the that you've stolen from. Anyone who steals must make restitution. You have to pay them back. Now, if you can't pay them back, then you have to do work. You have to go into an indentured servanthood or something to pay back the theft. And, there, and maybe in our situation today, there would be kind of a work contract where you work it off. Unfortunately, in our justice system, we have is we call it paying a debt to society. So we incarcerate people for crimes. We don't have a direct restitution type of system in our country. But maybe that's a point that needs to be raised by some thoughtful Christian leaders as a potential reform in our laws to bring it more into alignment with God's law. Something something to think about, something to throw out there. Now, some of you at this point might be wondering, you know, why is she spending so much time talking about the Mosaic law? And I want to restate something in case you tuned in late that I said at the beginning, that I know I'm aware that uh, Christians are not under the treaty of the Mosaic law. I'm using these laws as case studies to help give us insight into God's eternal nature, his, his moral nature of what is just and unjust. So even though we are under the covenant of, of the new covenant treaty, it is important to, to think about God's righteous demands and, and his standards of righteousness, his standards of, of justice, because his, his character doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's eternal. And justice flows out of the very character and nature of God. So when we look at the Mosaic Law, when we look at the wisdom literature, it gives us a wealth of insight into these case studies, into practical applications of what God considers righteous and holy living. Also, we don't want to commit the the heresy of the ancient theologian Marcion, who wanted to basically cut the Old Testament out of the Bible. He said, you know, all we need are the Gospels and the Epistles. That's it. The Old Testament has no relation to us as, as Christians. Rather, we want to follow in the footsteps of St. Paul, the apostle, who told Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for training in righteousness. So, so that's what I'm doing here. That's why I'm looking at these Scriptures to see what insights we can get about God's definition of, of just and unjust behaviors from the Old Testament. So I think that, you know, stealing is, is a really good case study since that was part of the Arbery situation. And so I think that one of the, the problems in that situation was that the, the people involved escalated the situation very quickly by involving firearms and, and brandishing a weapon. Now, 
I realize I'm being somewhat simplistic here and, and people are going to probably jump in and say, well, maybe it was a self-defense. They didn't know if the thief had a weapon and I get all that. And there would be other laws in God's law that would apply to those scenarios. For example, if we went back to Exodus 23 for a second, um, if you recall in the first verse, it said, if a thief comes into your house at night and you end up killing him, you're not guilty of his blood because it's at night. In other words, you didn't see him and you're protecting your family. Okay. But if you see him in broad daylight and, and you see that he's just stealing then you will be guilty of his life. So, you know, these things are not always, you know, so so clear and, and black and white, but I think it gives us some insight into how God sees these things. And this idea of if a thief comes into your house, if someone breaks into your house and you're, you're trying to protect your wife and children, this is what in our laws in some states have castle laws, where you're protecting your home. And this is kind of that idea. But I'm just trying to keep it sort of simple here so you can get the the big idea that I'm going for about how to think biblically about some of these situations. Now, while we're on the topic of stealing, I want to say one more comment about that that ties back into something we said at the beginning of the teaching about Sadak justice, which is our personal righteousness, our personal justice. The Proverbs say that if you catch a thief stealing food so he can feed his family, in Proverbs chapter 6, it says that you should basically just give him the food. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. If somebody steals from you because they're hungry, that's an entirely different situation in God's justice system. And that's personal justice. It's similar to the situation in the novel Les Miserables. And Jean Valjean steals bread to feed his family. And then he gets caught and he gets 19 years in prison. That violates God's justice system because it's over punishment. We don't give somebody 19 years of incarceration because they stole bread to feed their family. And then on his release, he steals some candlesticks from a local bishop and he gets caught again and he thinks I'm going back to prison. And the bishop extends this grace to him that we see described in, in Proverbs. And he has, he has grace toward him. He practices that Sadak type of, of justice. And he gives Jean Valjean the candlesticks and tells him now, Go make a new life for yourself. Go make yourself an honest man. Use these as a way of starting over. God's justice system, yes, has punishments. Yes, has all of these regulations. And it's not so legalistic that it doesn't see the context of a person's life. There's a legitimate place in God's justice for compassion. For example, in the Mosaic Law, there's an idea of debt cancellation. If somebody is just drowning in debt, they cannot be enslaved for the rest of their life for their debt. They, they might have to, to work to pay back the debt, but then there's a limit. And there's the year of Jubilee, and they can get released from that debt. So God's justice system has both. It has punishments. We don't overpunish, and we don't underpunish. We don't have no, we don't engage in no punishments unless there's a situation that involves 
righteousness and love and compassion. There's room for that too in God's justice system. Now, I want to make an observation, kind of a second major issue related to the Arbery situation that in the in the days following the release of the video. So when I when I saw the video come out, I, I kind of saw two major responses to the video. On one side, one response was this killing is racist and these guys were chasing him down and it was a modern day lynching. Some some form of 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 that response. And people in that camp were were hurt, traumatized, angry, and and that was kind of their their come from. The second types of responses and conversations I saw on social media were things like this. And this headline broke a day or two after the video broke. There was a white postal worker who was killed. And I saw this headline was all over social media. Indiana postal worker may have been fatally shot over delayed stimulus check. And then they put up this picture of a white woman and this young black man. And I saw all over social media headlines like, why isn't this headline say black man murders innocent white woman? And there was kind of this, this knee jerk reaction on the other side. And there was a lot of emotion and the narratives of these two positions. Now I'm going to try to do the absolute impossible here and see if I can try to help bring some understanding to both sides of these a little closer together. So I, if you just want to be patient, don't react in the chat box yet. <laughs> just maybe try on a, an idea here and see if we can, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, get a little closer together and, and try to make a stand for, for unity. I think that the concern that many in the Black community have when they see situations like the Arbery situation, when they saw that video, for them, they're coming at that through a lens, a very particular lens, that there was unequal treatment for Black victims. They're not saying that white victims matter less than Black victims. That's not what they're saying. What they are saying is that they want the deaths of Black victims to be equally pursued, equally investigated, equally prosecuted. That is their primary concern. And as we saw earlier in the teaching, that's actually a biblical idea. That ought to be all of our concerns as Christians. We all ought to advocate for equal treatment, equal investigation, equal pursuit of accountability. So when, when some in the Black community see stories like the Arbery situation, their big concern is, will this be equally pursued? Will this be equally investigated as equally as it would be if the victim was white. So in the, in the Indiana shooting with the postal worker, arrest was made very quickly. In the Arbery shooting, a couple of months had gone by. And so the lens through which that action is seen is see if the person is black, 
justice isn't pursued as quickly, as vigorously. And so it's not that black people want to degrade white people and say white lives don't matter. It's that they want to see quick arrests when the victim is black and they want those crimes to be as quickly, as vigorously investigated. That is their concern. And that is, I think, not an unreasonable concern. I think it is important, as we've seen through scripture, that we want to be a stand for that kind of justice, that we don't show partiality to the rich or the poor. So we have to kind of understand where the outrage comes from. Now, in this situation, I don't want to start parsing out all of the delays and all of that. And and there were some delays. There were delays in the situation, in the Arbery situation, because there was a couple of DAs that had to recuse themselves because of conflict of interest. Now, that could be seen as also fitting with God's justice system. If we want people involved in the investigation who aren't corrupt and are impartial, maybe that was a right thing to do for them to recuse themselves. But the delays plus the quarantine, you know, what? how vigorously did those factor in and would arrests have been made if the video hadn't come out? And that is the big question in many people's minds is, why did it take so long for there to be an arrest? For crying out loud, there's a video of him getting shot on camera. Why did it take an attorney who was actually trying to help the suspects um, leaking footage on social media that resulted in so much public outrage and pressure on the DA's office to make an arrest? That's the point of frustration. Why do Blacks have to work so hard in order to get equal prosecution for Black victims? Okay, and that, in principle, reflects a a big principle of God's justice. And I think that it's proper and right to ask that question. Now, I think that we can't get into, at the end of the day, we don't know why some decisions are made, because all we're relegated to are media reports. And If you saw my broadcast a couple of weeks ago, you know I am not optimistic about fair and unbiased media reporting. So really, the only people involved who know the truth are the people involved. It is the people in the DA's office and in the the police department. And they're the only ones really, at the end of the day, who know what their motivations are. And I'm not here to adjudicate that. But if, if we look at the situation through the lens of suspicion, then we understand why there was so much outrage. If we look at the situation through the lens of, I generally trust law enforcement, then we see it that way. And your emotions are going to follow whichever lens you choose, whichever way you see the world. So if you generally trust law enforcement, you're like, okay, let's give the justice system a chance to play out. And that's where your thoughts go. If your lens is one where you're like, I'm not confident that they are going to pursue equal justice for a black victim, then your emotions and and your your lens is going to go that way. And I think that at the root of it is the divide that we see in our country, is that we have these two different lenses. We look at the same situation, 
but we look at it from two different points of view. And then we see everything else through that lens. We see the evidence through that lens. We see other people's actions through that lens, whichever of those lenses that we choose. So the courts will have to sort this all out. We don't really know what's going to happen, but I'm just trying to give us some understanding into why, when we see these these kinds of situations, why people's emotions go in two different directions. Maybe that helps you. Maybe it doesn't. But my hope is that rather than allowing ourselves to get caught up in the outrage, maybe God's people can just step back and do some deeper Bible study on justice. Maybe it will send you to the scriptures to say, I wonder if God's word has anything to say about a situation like this. How can I be a stand for the victim? And how can I be a stand for the accused? How can we, as God's people, live out God's standard of justice? So let's talk about a couple of practical applications and then wrap up. So if you're someone and you're watching this right now, or maybe you share this with someone who works in law enforcement, or maybe you work in a prosecutor's office, um, and you're a Christian, maybe you're an attorney, you're somebody who's in that realm of justice. Kind of one of the big applications for you to consider in your life as a Christian who works in those areas is to work equally hard on behalf of all your victims, no matter their income level, um, no matter their social status. You want to work equally hard for all of your victims. That is God's standard of justice for the victims. And that is how you act in a distinctly Christian way. Maybe you're watching this and you feel like God is calling you into a career on the law and order side. And I want to encourage you, like, that's a noble profession. It is a tangible way for you to love your neighbor. And we need more Christians to think about those as careers, to bring the the transforming power of the gospel to that sector. If you've watched me for any length of time, you know that I believe that Jesus will reign over everything. And we want to bring all sectors under his submission, even though we live in a fallen world and even though sin corrupts everything, there's there's power in, in the gospel. And, and we as Christians should go into all sectors to bring that transforming power. So if you notice laziness and corruption on your job in law enforcement or in, in an attorney's office, you need to, to, to seriously get in a conversation with the Lord about reporting that. You need to, to report corruption. That is a big part of God's sense of justice for the victim is reporting corruption. Take a stand. Even if your job is at stake, Report it. Trust the Lord for his provision because you are standing for his standard of justice. Now, what can we as regular people do who don't work in law enforcement and we're not attorneys? What could we do? Well, here's one idea I had, and that is watch who you're voting for. We all have opportunities to vote for judges and sheriffs and politicians. Look for ones who lack partiality. You want to look, you can look online at judges' records, do you notice that, wow, these people, this judge really gives harsher sentences to this group of people over this group of people? I mean, it's hard to sort all that out, but at least try to make an effort. 
follow the news, do a Google search, see if this person's ever been reported for corruption. Try to figure out if you can a little bit about their record, anything that might alert you to them acting in partial or unjust ways. Has this judge ever been charged with bribery or has this officer or sheriff ever been charged with planting evidence? So there's, there's things to, to research as you're voting. On a personal level, how can we walk in a way of life that advocates for justice for the victim's family? How can we help come alongside the victim's family and be a stand for justice? Well, we want to pursue God's standards of justice. We want to encourage family members who have direct knowledge of the crime to come forward and provide truthful testimony. We want to discourage family members from engaging in lying to protect somebody in their family, protect the guilty. We want to discourage family members from engaging in revenge. We want to um, call attention to law enforcement officers or judges who are not being fair. They're not being impartial in their gathering and weighing of the evidence. These are some ways that we can stand for justice. We also want to mourn with those who mourn. As it says in Romans chapter 12, we want to weep with those who weep. We want to come alongside them and help them. We want to comfort them in this season. Maybe that's meals. Maybe that's organizing meals for them. Maybe that's organizing some, some help in funeral expenses. Maybe that involves you know a time of, of trying to help them with some practical physical needs as they're transitioning. We want to care for widows and orphans, the people who are left behind in the victim's family. We want to be a stand for the fatherless and for the the widows. This is this is something that is repeated both in the Old and the New Testament. Um, how can we protect the widows and the fatherless? You know, if if their father is gone, how do we, as a church family, come around them and make sure that they don't get taken advantage of? How can we even help parent and father the the children who are left behind? What do we as a local church family need to do to care for these family members? Do they need a father figure? Do they need a mother figure? Do they need help with burial expenses? These are some of the important questions for us to think about as Christians as we come along and advocate for justice for the families. Next week, we're going to tackle justice for the accused. And we'll continue the con- the conversation about the Arbery case and talk about the other side of the coin and how we need to stand for the accused as well. I hope this has provided you some things to think about. I do look forward to your feedback and your comments about this presentation. Please like, share, comment, help share this content with others. And I want to thank you for hanging out with me on this Tuesday night. Take care. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thank you.